What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Welcome back to Women vs. Hollywood, the podcast that explores the fall and rise of women in film. I'm your host, Helen O'Hara. I'm a film critic and author of the book of the same name as this podcast, because we ran out of ideas. In today's episode, we'll be looking at franchises, the big blockbuster movies that rely on established intellectual properties, or IPs, to bring in an audience. Instead of making a wide range of small, medium and big films, studios these days tend to rely on a tentpole strategy, where they concentrate most of their financial and advertising resources on five or six huge films per year. So to find out why this is the case, and what it means for women in the film industry, I spoke to freelance film critic and academic Rebecca Harrison, as well as Valerie Estelle Frankel, who is author of over 60 books on pop culture. But first, we'll hear from Lanny Diane Rich, who is a story expert, best-selling author, and award-winning podcaster. I asked Lanny why studios rely so much on franchises to make their money. What's happened is that everything has tightened. Even before COVID hit and people absolutely stopped going to movies, we had uh, changes in technology. We had the, um, you know, bigger TVs that we can have in our living rooms. I actually have a projector and like a 108-inch screen, Yum. Um, which was glorious when we did our Lord of the Rings day at home. So people are be able to get, you know, surround sound and all that at more affordable prices. I mean, they're still not everybody. They're still not available to everybody, but at more affordable prices than these to be, while movies started becoming more expensive because fewer people were going. Then you go and you pay, you know, $45 for a ticket and $108 for a bucket of popcorn. And you're like, well, why don't I just watch this on the TV at home? Is it really worth it? So we've had a lot of economic factors that have kind of gone into the squeeze on, um, on commercial uh, movie theater releases. So there's a lot of stuff like that that's been involved in it. So then you have people who were at the point where they are not willing to do the smaller budget take a chance, independent kind of thing anymore. They're really going for stuff where they know they've got a built-in audience. And when you're talking about a franchise, you know, that has been 50, 60, sometimes 70, 80 years in the making, you know, if you're talking about like the early, you know, Stanley, Jack Kirby stuff, your Captain's America and stuff like that from way back, there's so much built-in audience there. And if you can do it with enough things that kind of take advantage of the movie environment, right? You know, the big surround sound and the booming, you know, um, 
specially placed stereo system and the seats that recline back and then this incredible like special visual effects. Those are things that lend themselves to the reason why we will pay that much money to go out to a movie. Um, without aging myself, I want to say it was two bucks when I was a kid to get a <laughs> ticket at the local multiplex, you know, and go see, you know, the latest Steve Martin romantic comedy with Lily Tomlin, you know. So, so we've come a long way. Everything has changed. And also when I was that age and it was $2 to go see a movie theater, my television home, I think, was like a 19 inch and that was woo big deal you know so we had so many different effects but i think that the the covid effect in which we've had a lot of things going directly to various streaming services that would have been major theatrical releases are also kind of opening up this space where that's going to be an expectation for people so i'm interested to see what happens with major movie releases going forward if it's going to tighten down even more and be completely only franchises and things that have, have shown that they will um, will perform well in the theaters or if it's going to open back up a little bit because that pressure is gone now right you know like if you're if you're competing with everything that's on tv where we've got in television and netflix um we've got a lot more competition of these new ideas new people making new things getting lots of attention to where we've got them doing original marvel releases now on disney plus it's it's a very interesting extremely volatile uh system ecosystem that they've got going on so all of these changes are are kind of inter interacting with each other it's interesting to see what's going to happen yeah, it does feel like a, like an incredibly unsettled time, doesn't it? Yes. Mm -hmm. But it is also a time when, especially superhero movies, let's talk about them for, for a minute, because again, you're an expert. I know a bit. I've, I've covered quite a few of them um, for work. But, you know, they have come to dominate even blockbuster filmmaking. Even within that niche, they are the biggest niche. But I want to specifically talk for a moment about female superheroes, because they, for years, lagged behind their male contemporaries. Even someone like Wonder Woman, who was a big noise. I was at least, I, I at least grew up seeing Wonder Woman reruns. I don't think they were, I'm not quite old enough to have seen them on TV, be kind of live, but they were on TV when I was little and I would go to play group and I would play it being Wonder Woman. And yet she didn't get a, a film until 2017 you know, 40 years nearly after Superman, yeah. 30 years after Batman, you know, why did it take so long for the women to follow? Because there is a belief and I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, the source of it, if you think about it, is cultural misogyny, maybe, you know, I mean, certainly that's a source of a lot of bad things. But there is this idea that a woman can't lead a film. There is this idea that a woman can't be a stand-up comic because women, quote unquote, are not funny, which is absolutely patently ridiculous, right? But this is an idea. And so when you have, you know, pardon me for saying so, but a lot of straight white men at the top making these decisions, they look at their money and they say, this isn't going to fly because it's a woman and nobody goes to see women in superhero films. Now, you know, we have proven that false. It is not the fact that it's a man doing these things, but that it is, is a person doing these things. But the ability also at the same time, which contributes to the difficulties that women have in these films is, is not just that a woman is leading it, but that a woman is writing it, that a woman is directing it, that a woman is behind the scenes on this. We talk about 2017's like really super feminist, supposedly feminist like Wonder Woman, but if you look at the people who are behind it, it is all men. There's two women who are in the top production tier 
of like, I don't know, 15 people. And the two women, one of them is the daughter of one of the male producers and one of them is the wife of Zack Snyder. Deborah Snyder is, is on this, this list of people. So when you have predominantly people from that same traditional mindset, you know, of this is how things are, they tend to see women as women and not see women as people. And when you write any story about someone who is not presented as a whole and complete person, that story is going to pale. Not because it's a woman leading it, but because the people making the creative decisions about it didn't see her as a full and complete person, which is something we're still struggling with. If you watch Catwoman or, or you know, Supergirl, the original TV, uh, the original movie rather than the TV show, you see that for days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you really do. Well, I mean, yeah, we see these. I did a, a clip. I was teaching this in my storytelling class at Syracuse University, and I did a clip in which I compared the the introduction of the of the female characters in uh, Ryan Coogler's Black Panther as opposed to the introduction of Black Widow in Iron Man 2. And what we see is a lot of of boobs, you know, for Black Widow. Uh, Black Widow, I have a supercut where she takes down like, I don't know, I think it was five It was five men with her vagina where she does that. She runs up, she throws her thighs, she spins around their head and then they fall over. And that itself is a move. And somebody was like, oh, well, you know, that's a martial arts move. I'm like, great. When I see a man do it in one of these movies, then you can make that argument. But right at this point, this is how we introduce Black Widow. And then we have the the female characters in Black Panther who were treated as, as real, capable humans. I went to see that with my 15-year-old daughter, who was at that time interested in going into STEM. She is now a computer science major at the University of Arizona. And she cried. Because no one had ever presented like a character like Shuri, a capable woman who was able to do something without a man telling her what to do and telling her how to do it. It was incredibly um, moving to go to that movie as a woman and feel the, the absence of the slap. Right. You always as a woman, you go to these movies and you feel that slap, you feel that inner cringe. And because I'd grown up with that and didn't know what it was like not to have it to go to a movie where that was absent at, I don't know, what was I, 46, 47 when that movie came out? Um, I It was shocking to me. Like it was a shocking experience and I loved it. It, it is genuinely and I don't think men understand this. It is genuinely like a, an electric shock sometimes when you go to these movies and you're like, oh, that's me. And, and the reason men don't understand it is they've had it with like every movie their entire lives. And they've never even learned how to appreciate a movie where you don't have it. Whereas I think we've had to, we've had to say, well, okay, I don't see myself in this movie, but you know, I still appreciate it. I still love it. I don't think, not not all men, but I don't think a lot of men have ever really had to learn to do that because they've seen themselves in every movie. Yeah, well, based on your particular axes of privilege, there are certain things that you are encouraged not to see. My friend, uh, Dr. Charisse Laprie says that media literacy is seeing the things that you're actively encouraged not to see. And I absolutely love that quote. And I think that we are actively encouraged not to see certain things. And if you kind of sit on a pile of privileges, of various privileges, it's going to be a lot harder for you to be like, well, what? We put a woman in it. 
right? We gave you something without realizing that it's not their job to give us something. It's their job to make room for us. And by us, I don't just mean like, you know, the, the various, uh, you know, groups that we represent, but everybody. And it is a transition. It definitely is. And sometimes it can be really hard to see. And I know that as a white woman, I've had circumstances where there have been things that I have missed. And when somebody points them out to me, I'm like, oh, you know, and the thing is, I can't, I can't sit here and feel terrible about the fact that I didn't see it, but I can take that responsibility to work harder to see it from this point forward. And I think at the most part, that's what we are trying to do. I think that I'm seeing studios and TV productions doing more and more women, people of color, LGBTQIA+. They're getting in there in those creative positions more and more, and we are responding. Those are, you know, shows and and movies that are getting a real response from us culturally because we've all been just dying for this. So I'm excited on that end of things. I see the progress that we're making, and I try to hold on to that. I also asked Valerie Estelle Frankel about her thoughts on the representation of women in superhero movies, and in particular, how Marvel superheroines compare with DCs. DC absolutely stepped up and said Wonder Woman is one of the big three and in this release, okay, we'll ignore, what, 70 years of DC movie history, but in the DCEU, they stepped up and said Wonder Woman is in the equivalent of phase one. I don't know if they're counting it that way. Marvel? I mean, there have been so many empty gestures, starting with Avengers, where Black Widow is the straight man, and yeah, she's competent, but she really doesn't get a lot of the fun the other superheroes are having. I remember after watching Winter Soldier, I wrote a thing about, I'm not sure we can make a Black Widow movie with this character, because in Winter Soldier, she was having so much fun concealing her backstory and being the woman of mystery and being the character that we can't figure out, I was just watching this going, how would you even make that movie? And now they have made that movie, and the answer is to go in a completely different direction and start with her childhood and do tell all her secrets. Okay. But the woman of mystery thing was not working for me. And then actually after that came Superman Batman, where Wonder Woman was introduced as a woman of mystery who's also teasing and messing with the men. And honestly, based on that, I gave some interviews about what will the first Wonder Woman movie be like. And I was saying, based on this Batman Superman character, she's also a woman of mystery that we're not supposed to understand. So this, I'm not feeling good thoughts. Luckily, I was wrong. But Marvel has spent so much time saying, instead of a superheroine movie, let us give you a five-second team-up in Endgame. Instead of one, let's give you a joke about, oh, says Ant-Man, I guess I just forgot to call you Wasp at the important time. And Wasp is just as capable, but we're just not going to happen to use her in the Ant-Man movie. She's going to be the support. And there's just been so many movies where everybody is saying, uh, Marvel, why didn't you just send that superheroine in there? Well, especially with Ant-Man and Wasp, because, I mean... What do we learn about Wasp in the movie where she's one of the title characters? I felt like we learned absolutely nothing. Like there was no character development for her at all, except she misses her mother, right? I mean... Oh, you think women should have character development? <laughs> That's interesting. You're right. I'm I'm asking too much. I'm sorry. That's just too demanding. <laughs> 
I guess she, you know, is competent. They're all competent, right? That's that's what they have going for them. Yes, and that goes back to we have the strong female character and aren't you so impressed that she's so strong and mighty and competent? She's not fun. She's not making the quips. She's not our viewpoint character. Pepper Potts is like Iron Man's scolding nanny, slapping him down when he's doing the stupid stuff and we're sympathizing with the guy doing the stupid stuff because he's so much fun. But they put in a competent woman. I used to want to save the world. This beautiful place. But the closer you get, the more you see the great darkness within. That was, of course, an excerpt from the trailer for Wonder Woman, the 2017 film directed by Paddy Jenkins. The character of Wonder Woman first debuted in 1941, created by Professor William Moulton Marston and artist Harry G. Peter. She was meant, from the get-go, as an explicitly feminist hero, who fought for workers' rights and acted as a role model for children across the country. But Wonder Woman remained more or less a sole exception to the male-dominated mass of superheroes. After Marston's early death in 1947, DC turned down his wife's offer to continue writing the stories, which she had always assisted on, and sidelined Diana into giving fashion advice and, I'm not kidding, being secretary to DC's superhero team, the Justice League. This is someone who canonically has roughly equivalent powers to Superman. The story of Wonder Woman shows us that improvement isn't always linear, and that things are always much more complicated than a steady march of progress for women's representation. Even when the character is there, she isn't always being used properly. Rebecca Harrison feels the same about the Star Wars film franchise. She told me about the differences between the representation of women in the original trilogy versus the prequels. The fascinating thing about Star Wars is that women's representation doesn't track in the way that you would expect it to. Because I think we tell ourselves a story about improvement and progression being linear and like happening really consistently over a period of time. So it's really easy for us to look back at films, I mean, from any historical period and say, oh, well, it was really bad then, but of course it was bad because that was the past and we're better now and more enlightened. But Star Wars is great because it really challenges that and it makes it really visible that that's just not true. So the women's representation in the 70s and 80s is, to my mind, better than than it is in the 90s and the the early 2000s which doesn't really speak very highly of that period of time because the 70s and 80s weren't great but yeah in those early films you definitely see there aren't many women there's princess leia and a couple of other kind of minor women characters most of them aren't named if they appear at all but you know she's the boss and i mean even when she's being disrespected she kind of maintains her authority and responds to that in quite a direct way and carries on irrespective of the way that she's being treated by men. And then when you hit the prequels in the 90s and 2000s, you have Natalie Portman's character, who is walked all over, is quite wet in a lot of ways. Like, she doesn't have a huge amount of power, even though she's the leader of this entire population on the planet. And it, yeah, it doesn't, even the way she dresses, she's in those tiny tank tops. But then when you get to the more recent ones, the sequels there's a shift again and they are slightly more women-centered 
women's screen time improves quite dramatically. There are more named characters. There's more representation of women of colour. I mean, some of these films have zero representation of women of colour at all, other than as unnamed aliens. So, you know, they're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it does get better. What does it say then that there are certain parts of the internet, and they are small parts that I think are just noisier than their numbers suggest, but... You know, they have been so vocally opposed to characters like Ray, like Rose. You know, they have been so vociferous in their complaints about these characters. What does that tell us? I mean, for me, that ties into so much else that's going on beyond Star Wars. And again, I think Star Wars is useful because it points to these broader problems and tells us about how film and the entertainment industries are implicated in these bigger conversations rather than being isolated in a little bubble of their own what we're seeing with the backlash against women's representation particularly against women of color in star wars is amplifying the problems that we know exist elsewhere in society it taps into the backlash against the me too movement it massively is about a kind of backlash against fourth wave feminism against black lives matter about all of the socially progressive movements that we've seen with people demanding better access to resources, more equitable status in society. And, you know, that's been happening in Star Wars as a result of those bigger conversations happening. You know, we wouldn't have more women on screen. We wouldn't have women of colour in Star Wars, albeit still in quite minor roles, without the work of all of the actresses of colour, without the Me Too movement, without all of these other things going on behind the scenes. Lots of black activists speaking up and doing the work. I mean, obviously, John Boyega has become a kind of figurehead for that post-Star Wars. And as, you know, as we've seen, has been treated appallingly for it. Yeah, I'd, I'd, for me, the issue with that very small subset of, I'm going to use air quotes, Star Wars fans, isn't like its own concealed, contained problem. And I think it's like easy to think of it that way because it's like, oh, well, these are Star Wars fans and I'm not a Star Wars fan, so it's not my problem. But actually, you know, we've seen it everywhere with the alt-right, with incels. You know, this is, this is not a contained problem. I'm Sam Clements, host of the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival, another podcast in the Stripped Media family, a podcast that celebrates movies under 90 minutes long. Each episode, I'm joined by a special guest who selects a movie to join our prestigious lineup. Past guests have come from the worlds of film, television, music, food, comedy, and podcasting. Search for us now on the app you're currently listening to this podcast or join us at 90minfilmfest.com. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. 
I think the dominance of all these franchises, and I look, I love a lot of these films, but you know, Star Wars is one of the more recent uh, sources for Hollywood franchises because we've got things like Marvel, many of which characters are 60, 80 years old, you know, Sherlock Holmes and Tarzan, and all that they keep trying to bring back and make something out of. Um, there are all of these sources of, of reboots and, and IPs, as they're called intellectual properties, that go back 30, 50, 60, 80, 100 years. And all of those are pretty much straight white male dominated in their original forms. So when we come to try and carve a space for new voices and more diverse voices in cinema, in big budget cinema, certainly, you get this, you do get this pushback from quote unquote fans who say, but it's always been a straight white man. And therefore it almost must be a straight white man, at least in their tellings of it. I mean, is this a problem? Is this fact that we keep relying on these very recognisable names in itself a barrier to kind of moving things forward? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think there's, you know, there's bigger problems with the over-reliance of studios on franchises and like the impact that has on exhibition, on audiences, on indie film. You know, it's all so white and so patriarchal and so toxic in so many different ways. The frustrating thing about this idea that it's straight white men making these films or like contributing to these franchises over the history of them is that often it, it isn't or it's the fact that the way these texts are represented in media in news in criticism is people honing in on those white men and making them stand in for the entire creative process you know it's the thing that always really bothers me about auteur theory or the kind of obsessiveness of, of auteurism, where I'm like, that's not how these films get made. And you're erasing the work of so many people. So when you look at the history of Star Wars, there are so many women involved in making these films. There's a guy called Ashley Boone Jr. who worked for 20th Century Fox in the 70s and 80s, who was really responsible for the success of the Star Wars films in terms of the kind of cult following that they built up on release, the strategy to only put them in a certain number of cinemas to really, really ramp up desire in the audience to go and see them, ensure that there were, you know, queues around the block when they opened. And that was a black man, and that gets overlooked a lot of the time. Absolutely. he was. He's the brother of uh, Cheryl Boone, who's the head of the Academy now, isn't that right? I did not know that. Apparently so, yeah. Ah, well, there you go. Yeah, no, I didn't realise that. But yeah, so I think there's a lot of instances where women's names get left out of the conversation. And when you go and speak to members of the crew who were working on those films, they always, you know, even when you're speaking to men, they're saying, oh, like, oh, yeah, this woman who was our continuity girl, but like she was the most important person on set and she was the only woman on location and she was doing this amazing job and without her, we wouldn't have been able to do X, Y, Z. There were women working the cameras there was so it's not quite as straightforward as saying this history is you know maybe it, white men definitely have more power and the way that women have been treated in the industry we know is terrible and that ultimately needs to change I mean how long has it taken for Star Wars to hire even a white woman to direct a film and you know and like Patty Jenkins has had to direct how many films to get given this opportunity so yeah that that needs to change Absolutely. And what about, you know, not just, you know, in terms of race and in terms of gender, but also in terms of, you know, sexuality and LGBTQ plus representation. You know, there's been some tiny steps towards better representation in the recent films. But I mean, blink and you'll miss them, right? Does it feel kind of tokenistic at this point? 
Yeah, I have strong feelings about this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does feel like you're being thrown scraps. And actually, that lesbian kiss at the end of The Rise of Skywalker, I mean, I have mixed feelings about that. On the one hand, great, there was this moment of like, oh, yes, finally, finally, they've done it. But also, at the same time, it, what does it really mean when you can cut that and like edit that out really easily for different versions of the film? It wasn't narrative. It was just there. And actually, a lot of the queer subtext, even in the original Star Wars films, is more interesting to me in terms of representation than than that kiss. And I, I feel like it has slipped into that really neoliberal idea of, you know, representation is visibility and visibility is representation. And that's everything. And I think that we should all be asking for more than that. Suppose the interesting thing about Star Wars, and I think a lot of the other franchises as well, is that obviously they don't just exist as films they're these kind of paratextual like they their stories exist across multiple platforms and media that's the point of them as franchises and a lot of them are actually not bad I don't think for queer representation off screen so Star Wars has quite a few queer characters in its comic books and novels that doesn't always translate into how they're represented on screen. So often I think that's overlooked when they appear in TV series or in the films. But it's there if you go beyond the big blockbuster texts. But but that's it, isn't it? They're they're actually they're doing the work or they're, you know, they're they're allowing these characters in the extended universe books and in the comics and things like that. But when it comes to putting you know, them in these big nine-figure blockbusters, then suddenly they get squeamish and suddenly it's an issue. And suddenly that part of a character's history is pretty much written out a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, I think it all comes down to their bottom line. They're taking, from their point of view, more overall risks with the films because there's more money going into them and they need to recoup more money to keep the franchise going. And I guess their argument is, well, we can't risk having queer characters in these films because suddenly... I mean, the argument always goes, oh, no, we won't sell films in China, overlooking. I mean, it, it, to me, that's such a racist narrative because it just overlooks like, well, no, really, you'll struggle, you'll struggle to get past the widespread homophobia in the US or in the UK. Like, this is, this is a homegrown problem. Let's not overlook that. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really noticeable. I mean, you saw it in the Marvel franchise as well when they started doing the... The Jessica Jones series, there were a couple of others as well where they were putting more marginalised characters up front centrally with their own kind of named series. But they were TV series before they realised that actually those were popular enough that they would take risks with making something like the Black Panther film. The frustrating thing about female representation in mainstream franchises is that the source material and expanded universes for these films often has a lot more representation for marginalised groups than they're willing to include in film. Oracle, a character in DC Comics formerly known as Batgirl, became more powerful and more popular than ever in her wheelchair as a tech and information specialist after the Joker broke her back. Batwoman is canonically a lesbian and was portrayed as such in her 2020 TV show, but the big screen hasn't yet caught up. The unbeatable Squirrel Girl has a curvier body type than we generally see on these heroines on screen, and her ally Koi Boy, aka Ken Shiga, is a trans man. Equally, in the comics, Iceman has been gay for years and even got married to another man, while recently one of the Supermen in DC Comics came out as bisexual. 
So there are characters out there who can open doors wider if only movie studios would give them a chance. Valerie Estelle Frankel spoke to me specifically about the lack of representation of disability on the big screen. Disability, they've done a teeny bit, but and you can get the list of movies, but basically disability is the one we haven't cracked for the big movies in the way that women and people of color are finally getting on screen somewhat a bit. Not 50-50, but more. But more. Yeah, but at least there's some, there's efforts being taken. I don't see any efforts really being taken with disability representation, you know. And isn't there an interesting story there in a, I don't know, a blind person trying to save the world or a, you know, a wheelchair user suddenly gaining superpowers of some sort? I mean, we're not counting Professor X here because that's he's been played entirely by able-bodied actors for one. But, you know, there, there's got to be a way to do this. There's got to be a way to to bring these stories to the big screen at the at a big budget. Yes. And if anybody is sitting there going, I can't imagine how to do this, the answer is to go somewhere with fewer gatekeepers, like, say, novels and short stories, where this stuff has been done. I was just reading a lovely short story where um, a deaf person goes up in space and the radios are out and his using sign language with his brother is the only way They all survived this mess, and then it turns out the reason that they can't fix the device is it's emitting a horrible sound too horrible for anyone with hearing to go in there and fix. Do you think that that things are genuinely getting better? You know, do you think we've... People talk about this sometimes like it's a fad, which I don't think it is, but do do you think there's still that danger of it being dismissed as such um, if we don't kind of keep up the pressure? I think it's gone too far to say it's a fad. I think it's gone too far to say it's a failure or that female-led action movies aren't going to work. I think we got our foot in the door, unlike, again, the bad superheroine movies that went down in infamy and freaked out the studios. Now we have enough good ones we can point to that I think female representation will continue. Happening to have white, cis, able-bodied men kick butt in center stage will also continue but we're mixing it up a bit more what do you think still needs to change what is the biggest what are the biggest problems that you think we still need to tackle right now i think we need to take a look at can we get some other representations some characters are more than one thing which books have done an amazing job with so if listeners are looking for more of this stuff absolutely search up books especially all this teen fantasy and sci-fi that's been coming out now because it's make a real effort to break down some boundaries but yeah more disability more can we get some non uh straight cis a uh, single race single attitude toward their entire experience and single representative of their stuff can we get some other people out there on Yes, the big screen that the studios have to shell out real money for. I also asked Lani Diane Rich about the changes she would like to see in franchise filmmaking and how we can improve things for women and other marginalised groups. I think that the first thing that needs to happen is that culturally behind the scenes, uh, a lot of these studios and, and, you know, big money commercial enterprises um, need to clean up what's going on behind the scenes as we've seen 
recently, you know, there was the whole, of course, Harvey Weinstein kind of thing that when in when behind the scenes, certain people of power are able to do whatever they want, then we know that nothing has actually changed, that they're just responding to market forces. And it's always going to be shallow. You know, the recent relevations about Joss Whedon, which of course have been, you know, I've been following closely as somebody that covers Joss Whedon properties professionally, has been really, really disturbing. I read everything about um, like Ray Fisher's accounts and Charisma Carpenter's accounts. And the thing that we had in both of those instances was that the the major high ups were not paying attention because we can we are more powerful we can destroy these people and when that is the attitude behind the scenes that is going to ripple out through everything else so the big thing is hiring more and more people from diverse backgrounds making sure that you live to these new values not just you know like put somebody on screen who is from this background and then do colorblind casting, colorblind writing, colorblind casting and writing are not helpful. We need to be able to acknowledge who people are and still let them be human. And that is a process that we're in. So clean up the act behind the scenes, make sure that the culture at the studios represents all of these values that we are, we are now saying we live to, right? Because they're popular culturally. When they're cleaned up behind the scenes, it's going to get cleaned up in front. When we've got people from different backgrounds in those high-powered positions, then we're going to see that reflected in all of the stories. And then we can get past a lot of this. You know, we need one of the problems we're having now is that we don't have enough, you know, stories from different identities from those perspectives now. You know, I had a class in which we did the story, uh, the movie Love Simon, which you know features a an extremely privileged young kid whose parents are completely 100% behind him in his coming out process, and that's really nice. But one of my students was like, "Well, that wasn't my experience, you know. Like none of that. We didn't have money. My parents didn't support me. My friends were weird. Like, you know, all of that stuff." And I'm like, "Yeah." And also, like, shouldn't you know LGBTQIA also have funny little frizzy stories? that are just fun, that are just a good time. And until you have enough stories, then when we allow enough of these stories from different identities to allow different kinds of stories in those spaces where every, you know, LGBTQ narrative does not need to be a story of horrible struggle and pain and isn't it terrible and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Don't we suffer, you know? then I think that we're going to be, we're going to see ourselves in a better place when we start to see, again, more complex, more varied stories coming from all identities, then we're going to be able to, to really know that we've made some real progress. So there are perhaps small steps being taken. TV's Batgirl, at least, is gay. We've also seen recent stills from the upcoming Hawkeye TV show that appear to show Hawkeye wearing a hearing aid, which again, he's had in the comics for years, and which really shouldn't make any difference to his ability to shoot an arrow. There is room to include all of these different identities in a superhero persona, and it only gives that character something more and something different and something fresh to play with, rather than being yet another tortured loner played by a very handsome white guy called Chris. Nothing against very handsome white guys called Chris. Heck, I work with one. That's not the point. The point is that everyone should be able to see themselves on screen as a superhero. Just in a little personal story, 
Soon after Black Panther came out in February 2018, I live in a part of southeast London where there was an unseasonal snowstorm early in March. And I walked through the park one day near a school and I saw 11 and 12 year old kids pelting each other with snowballs and shouting Wakanda forever. These are kids who maybe hadn't seen themselves as a hero on the big screen before and they had instantly adopted Black Panther as their new hero. There's something to be said for that. It means something. It doesn't mean everything. It's not the end of the game. It's not enough. But it is a start and it will help the next generation to grow up seeing themselves on screen saving the world. Because God knows we all need to save the world in the next few years. So thank you to our guests, Rebecca Harrison, Valerie Estelle Frankel and Lani Diane Rich. You can follow the links in the show notes to find out more about them and their work. And as ever, I highly recommend doing so. And we've almost come to the end of this episode of Women vs. Hollywood. But before you go, here are some of our guest recommendations of underrated female-led films that you may have missed. If you'd like to hear Rebecca's recommendation, do listen to our episode on critics. But in the meantime, here's Lani. Oh, God, I really love Can You Ever Forgive Me? Um, it's a lesbian woman's story based on the book written by that woman, Lee Israel, um, in a screenplay written by a woman and a gay man, Nicole Hall of Center and Avenue Q's Jeff Witte, uh, produced by women, directed by women. And it's a story in which a lesbian and a gay man are centered, but their lesbian and their gayness is not what the story is about. She does not suffer because she is a lesbian. He does not suffer because he is a gay man. They suffer because they are complicated and kind of amoral and so much fun. And here's Valerie. You've already heard of them, but Captain Marvel and Ghostbusters, with all the flack they got, they were offering a lot that we don't get to see as much. And I thought that that was special just in itself. So you can find a list of all the films recommended by my guests in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to Women vs. Hollywood. I've been your host, Helen O'Hara, and you can find my book, Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, anywhere that books are sold here in the UK. The audiobook is currently available in the US and Canada on Audible, and the book will be released in the US and Canada in December. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a five-star review on your podcast app of choice. It really does help. And to find us on social media, use the hashtag Women versus Hollywood. This podcast is produced by Stripped Media with our executive producers Kobe Omanaka and Ella Watts and our producer Maddie Searle. The podcast artwork is by Steve Laird. Thanks for listening. See you next time. just heard a stripped media production.